0: Uh, My name is David Bartosik. Uh, I love being one of the pastors around here. And I just want to give you guys an update on where we are uh, with two initiatives we introduced at our annual meeting last year, both with our Building God's Way initiative and uh, just what it means to share God's heart around uh, the issue of human sexuality. Uh, And so if you're unfamiliar with the uh, metaphor, uh, the trellis and the vine, we're about vine growth. Uh, But you need something to see that vine grow (laughs) on or from. And we call that scaffolding, a trellis, uh, the structures. But we're ultimately never just about trellis building. We want to see the life and vitality of vine growth, which is the people and the spiritual life uh, that God is doing in our hearts. And so uh, the update for us, for us around here, (laughs) uh, there's more joy in Jesus than anything else this life has to offer uh, a verse for us around here is John 10.10. 10. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but Jesus says that he came to bring life and life abundant. We, we long for that abundant, joy-filled life in Christ, uh, and yet we know the thief. <laughs> the thief uh, offers things from the outside in that if our circumstances were different, then we'd be happy. If the outside was just better for us, then we would be happy. Uh, attempting to assuade what is intended to, and designed for us to anchor our lives in God, the thief attempts to, to distract us with so many other things that would take our attention, one of which currently that it appears our culture is wrestling with is around this idea of human sexuality. So what we've been praying, we're debt-free, and so we've been praying, God, what are you inviting us into? And last year, we updated our statement of faith to reflect a a fuller picture of what it means to be made in the image of God. And so after Easter, um, stay tuned for most likely a five or six-week Sunday evening sessions where we hope to just explore God's heart a little bit more fully around this issue. Uh, Probably a little bit more uncut, raw, telling people stories and and trying to accomplish three things. One, God, what is your heart? We want to hear from you through your word. What is your heart around this issue? Uh, Two, we want to step into this where people might be wrestling in, in a variety of ways, the way our culture is fractured over human sexuality. To provide support and encouragement to find life in Christ, and then three, what would it look like to lovingly stand for the hope, the truth, the joy, the gospel around this? and then second, with building god 's way, uh, we 've been asking, God, what are you inviting us into and so, on March sixteenth nineteenth and twenty first from six thirty to eight thirty, if you call Hillcrest home, I would really love you to participate. Uh, as our leaders, as our elders get to share a little bit about what we believe God's inviting us into around our campus, surrounded with two things. One, how do we truly uh, create spaces to invest in the next generation to give our big faith away so they have what we have, and that our campus would be more cohesive with a master campus plan uh, to see ourselves as a hub for gospel proclamation, To reach the lost, to equip the saints, and to see more joy-filled communities of faith, biblically saturated, multi-generational communities of faith, uh, sent out from us, seeing ourselves as a hub. What would it look like to have a campus designed to reflect that intent? So we'd love to see you March 16th, 19th, or 21st, uh, if you call Hillcrest home, to, to hear from our team, our leaders, about what we believe God might be inviting us into. So I'll turn it over to you, Jack.
1: Thanks, David. To pray desperately and dependently that the Lord would lead us uh, into this next chapter. That's good. Uh, A reading from C.S. Lewis The Efficacy of Prayer. Some years ago, I got up one morning intending to have my hair cut in preparation for a visit to London. I hope the irony is not lost on us in the room. That I am, as the bald guy, am reading a line about a haircut. Um, and the first letter I opened made it clear I need not go to London, so I decided to put the haircut off, too. But then there began the most unaccountable little nagging in my mind, almost like a voice saying, "Get it cut, all the same. Go, get it cut." In the end, I could stand it no longer. I went. Now, my barber at the time was a fellow Christian and a man of many troubles, whom my brother and I had sometimes been able to help. The moment I opened his shop door, he said, Oh, I was praying that you might come today. Oh, I was praying that you might come today. And in fact, if I had come a day or so later, I should have been no use to him. It awed me. It awes me still, but of course, one cannot rigorously prove the casual connection between my my barber's prayers and my visit. <sighs> Good morning, and welcome to Hillcrest. My name is Jack. I'm one of the pastors on staff around here, as David said. And whether uh, wherever you are on this spectrum of these kinds of stories, I want to invite you into. We use this phrase a lot around here that prayer is the work. It's a value of ours to be desperate and dependent in prayer. And so, my hope with this is that we believe that just a little bit more fully this morning. On that note, will you join me in prayer as we pray for this text? Jesus, thank you so much for Luke 6. Thank you for your word written for us. Inspired by your Holy Spirit, that we may learn from it, that we may sit with it, and that we may grow in it. Would you help us to pray as you pray, and invite as you invite, to love the people that you love. Amen. I'm excited to get into our text this morning, Luke 6, 12 through 26, so please turn there to uh, that location in your Bibles or in your packet, and uh, on the packet, you may or may not see that it says Jesus t- uh, chooses slides. It's a, I've heard from a lot of you, yes, it is a uh, mistype. It's supposed to be chooses sides. <laughs> you guys are ruthless. Um, <laughs> so we'll begin... Uh, Verse 12, 12 through 26. In these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them 12 whom he named the apostles, Simon, who he named Peter, Andrew, his brother, James and John and Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, uh, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon who was called the Zealots, Judas the son of James, Judas Iscariot who became a traitor, and he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. They all came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them. And he lifted his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. So their fathers did to the prophets, but woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry." Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. If you're new here, I want to catch you up on this progression. Uh, We've been in this five-part movement, uh, and we are currently in our second portion, the teachings of the king. And at Hillcrest, my bad, I lost my place there, we move through books at a time. So we sit in Luke for a while and we go through each portion, discovering each little section of what it might be for us uh, to read this and, and discover this divinely inspired word written for, uh, not to us, but written for us. Uh, because this text has various moving parts, I want to make sure that I labor on the things that have not been said yet. And so, if you were here back in April, you may remember David actually covering a portion of this passage. Um, the distinction he was making was between the empire and the kingdom. That we, as citizens uh, of God's kingdom, though we are currently residents here on Earth, and to live as a citizen but not under the empire. Uh, if don't remember any of this, that's really okay. This The audio is available on our website, and if you need more information, feel free to email the office. But for now, let me give you the main pieces that are relevant this morning. David's text was in Matthew, and the big idea to summarize was that the kingdom of God is for the lowly. Matthew, in his text, although similar to Luke, records there being a great crowd of multitude of people that David and I—he came up with this phrase. I think that's rightly so. Spiritual zeros. They were sick. They were weak. They were hungry. They were spiritually oppressed and dying and and, and demon possessed. And as David read Matthew, he asked us to look at it through the lens of the present time. Uh, David shared this um, idea that it is—it's a little bit of an unpopular opinion. It's the idea that the B attitudes—a title which. Uh, is given in the Bible. It's probably written in front of you right now. It's actually um, a teaching and a, and a way to understand Scripture that is maybe unhelpful as it, it teaches us to basically be these postures or be these modes in order to achieve holiness. And I don't think, and I, so I agree with David on this, I'm not sure it's incredibly helpful for that, especially when looking at the context because Matthew 4, and 25, it mentions who Jesus is teaching. He's teaching the people who are poor in spirit, mourning over loss, hungry, hated, and so forth. And as Jesus, uh, in that moment, he actually meets them in their need. He heals them, he comforts them, and then he follows his time healing with this sermon speaking to their reality. Blessed are you who are poor, mourning, hungry, hated, and so forth. And then at the end of this uh, sermon, David kind of pivots and he goes to uh, this passage in Luke because Matthew doesn't record the woes, but Luke does. And it's, David draws this line that if the, um, if the blessings of the kingdom are for the spiritual zeros, then the woes must be a caution for those who have confidence earthly things. Again, if you want to spend more time on this text, I would encourage you to go back to the past April sermon found on the website and journey with the Lord in it. But for now, I want to focus a lot of my energy on the first portion. So my big aim this morning is we want to pray as Jesus prays and invite as Jesus invites. If you hear nothing else this morning, I want you, we want to be a community that praises Jesus prays and invites as Jesus invites. So let's begin starting in verse 12 In these days he being Jesus went out to the mountain to pray and all night he continued in prayer to God. Dang. Okay, more on that in a bit. When day came he called his disciples and chose from them 12 whom he named the apostles. Simon, who he named Peter, Andrew, his brother, James and John and Philip. And okay, what's going on here? I just want to pause. There's some nuances. We're going to pick those apart. Jesus stays up all night just praying. And then he picks out his dudes. But why did he spend all night praying? I think if we look at the text, it's because big things are happening. Huge movements are happening. And I think this is the progression. He prays all night, he invites his dudes, and then he demonstrates the kingdom of God is for the lowly. So our first two sections, pray all night and invite his dudes, will be where we sit uh, this morning. So Jesus is picking out his dudes that are going to be his bros, right? Like These are not just like... um, like, the guys that are going to be like, oh, yeah, we'll see you, in, you know, next week regularly for coffee on Sunday morning, whatever the case is. No, no, no. These are like his bros. He's going to be intimately with these guys, like, intimately, like, t- talking and eating the same food, sleeping in the same places, probably breathing the same air, in all honesty. When a rabbi, a fancy word for a teacher, in those days called his students who would be their disciples— The disciple was so incredibly in, like a desire to be all in in that moment. Martina Grayson puts it this way in her research. People had a high expectation from a rabbi because he taught them how to interpret, but also how to live the Torah, which is the fancy word for scripture at the time. Disciples would willingly submit to the rabbi's interpretation because it was an honor to follow the rabbi. Grayson goes on to explain that it was common culture to desire to be so close that the rabbi would uh, that you would want to be covered in the dust of your rabbi, like it was considered a blessing, like that you were so intimate that there's like dust falling off your rabbi and you are cloaked cloaked in it. They would uh, these disciples would begin to think like their their rabbi, engaging in conversations, quoting such passages that the. Rabbi had taught them to memorize, they would begin to talk like him, as in they would pick up certain phrases and inflections bit of his voice, like basically mimicking him because it's it's an honor to, to be considered a disciple of a rabbi. They would even begin to walk like him, a whole life orientation to slow down to their cadence, to sit and pray like them. For better or for worse because we recognize there were bad rabbis in that day, for better or for worse, the disciple would model their entire life around the teacher. And Jesus is picking the guys that are already thinking in this way. Followers who wanted to be covered in the dust of Jesus. And as a side tangent, I also want to ask, like, do we find ourselves with this kind of level of ambition, this, this kind of eagerness to follow Jesus? Do we have that level of expectation, as Grayson puts it, like to to, to be a disciple of this teacher? And it's not a guilt trip. Don't hear that. I'm just asking because in my own life, I often wonder, based off of where I see my time allocated, that I maybe don't follow Jesus because maybe I don't have that level of expectation. So then it would follow that Jesus is not going to pick guys like me, right? He's going to pick the guys that are super spiritually sensitive. He's going to pick the, the grade A slam dunk go team, the knockout, dragout superstars. Let's look at a few of these guys, right? Let's hype them up. Let's uh, get the John Cena music going. Simon, who is Jesus, uh, who Jesus renames to Peter because, you know, Jesus can do that. Peter, Peter's not that great of a dude. Like, though many of us know Peter as a big mouth, there are plenty of other things that aren't super great with him. He's ambitious, he's ignorant, he's impatient. And those are the things that we can just discern from the text. James and John, sons of a dude named Zebedee. Later, James and John get to be on the inner circle of some of Jesus' work. He gets to be, they get to see him transfigured before their eyes. Which is kind of cool because it's despite the fact that they expressed an, un, uh, an inappropriate amount of zeal, which then dubbed them the names of Sons of Thunder, which is kind of Jesus' play, uh, play on words going, okay, you guys are a little much. Uh, Matthew, otherwise known as Levi, a tax collector on the Roman payroll. Simon the Zealot, someone who wants to overthrow the Roman Empire. Boy, they must have had some really good conversations. Like, think about that. That doesn't get more polar opposite than that moment right there. Like, you got someone, if you remember back to Bruce's message two weeks ago, Matthew is electing to be in the position of a tax collector. And Simon the Zealot, at this point, may or may not have killed a few tax collectors in an attempt to overthrow the Roman Empire. Next, you got Thomas, also known as Doubting Thomas, because he doubted Jesus' resurrection and needed to put his hands into his uh, holes and inside so that he could verify that Jesus did truly resurrect. And then you got Judas Iscariot, who would later betray Jesus. This is a cracking team. This is is an awesome team, right? Like the two guys that seem the best in this roster are uh, James, son of Alphaeus, and Bartholomew, and that's only because there isn't much written about them. The text doesn't cover them that much. Yet Jesus invites them all to follow him. He invites these dudes who are broken, full of pride, and most importantly, these guys who set in motion the church after Jesus' ascent to heaven. That's crazy. That's heavy. One commentator writes this. uh, Accordingly, when they had continued... With Jesus, as long as it was necessary for this end, he sent them out two by two into Judea on the important work of preparing the people for his reception, uh, who is the true shepherd. Hence, the, he named them the apostles, that is, persons sent out. But the name was more peculiarly applicable to them, and their office was raised to its perfection after Christ's ascension, when he sent them out into all the world with the doctrine of the gospel, which he enabled them to preach by inspiration, giving them the power at the same time to confirm it by the most astonishing miracles. These are the guys. These fallen, broken, full of pride, quick to speak, quick to anger guys. That's, that's crazy. And they're setting up the church these are the guys that are following Jesus and setting up the church. I think that's kind of comforting. Is that comforting to you? I'm guessing because, like, you feel this way too, right? Sometimes we feel we aren't worthy of following Jesus. You you wish we had it all together. We wish we had it all together, but sometimes we feel like we don't. Maybe we have this pretend face on at certain times, and we just... Uh, We're worried that someone is going to figure out who the real me is, who the real person is behind the mask. That they'll see our brokenness, see how worthless we are, and yet who does Jesus pick? Jesus is not concerned with your performance. He's concerned with your heart. He is in the business of making you a new being, but Hillcrest, Jesus loves you regardless of those lies you tell yourself. He loves you because he loves you. And he chose you because that is who he is. Though it's an Old Testament text, it speaks to God's heart for his people, which now through Jesus extends to us. It says this in Deuteronomy 7, 7 through 8. It is not because you were more in number than other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all people, but it is because the Lord loves you And is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. This is who God has been from the start, choosing people not because of merit or beauty or ability, like fill in the blank. He loves you because he loves you. That's who he is. So Jesus prays all night, he picks this messy crew of misfits, and then sets off to heal a bunch of people. Pick up in 17, he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples, not the apostles, different group, a great multitude of people from all Judea, Jerusalem, and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. Anyone else exhausted? My guy spends all night praying, wakes up, selects his bros, selects his dudes, the 12 guys that are going to be with him intimately, turns around and sees, a, sees this sea, this four towns worth of people, of broken, weary, heavy with trauma and pain, demon-possessed people, and in compassion, Jesus remains with them, healing them. So at the end of a long day, what do you guys do? Are you so exhausted that if you have to do one more thing, you, you may just lose it? Like, what do you do? Like, do you do you rest? Do you recoup? Do you turn to the Lord? Do you turn to Disney Plus? Do you wander aimlessly on your phone? Do you turn to prayer? What about the start of a really busy day? We look ahead and we see that every hour is packed. It's just stacked, task to task, meeting to meeting, school to after school events. Do we numb the day ahead? Repeating the same things that we did to rest at the end of the day. Maybe we see the list ahead, and out of anxiety or or fear, we jump on that list and begin, uh, before we begin being still with the Lord, we don't rest, we don't worship. Out of anxiety and fear, we want to get it done. So instead of resting and praying and worshiping so that we can work with joy, we binge and we procrastinate, we numb, which then makes us work with like, you know, all sorts of other emotions, this fear, anger, resentment, anxiety, name the emotion. I started that reading of the efficacy of prayer by C.S. Lewis because Jesus begins his day with prayer. So as I began studying this text, I wanted to know more fuller what the what the thing is. What is prayer? So I began kind of studying, and I, I found a few different authors and writers, and I felt that C.S. Lewis captured it the best. And so it's uh, it's him just processing this experience with the barber, and he asks tons of questions, um, and just all with the goal of figuring out what the heck is prayer. And he writes this, and I'm going to read this a little bit more slowly. So track with me. For up until now, we have been tackling the whole question in the wrong way and on the wrong level. The very question, does prayer work, puts us in the wrong frame of mind from the outset. Work as if it were magic or a machine, something that functions automatically. Prayer is either a sheer illusion or a personal contact Between an embryonic, incomplete persons, ourselves, and an utterly concrete person, that is God. Prayer in the sense of petition, and I'm going to slow down even more because I think this is really significant. Prayer in the sense of petition, asking for things, is a small part of it. Asking for things is a small part of prayer in C.S. Lewis's mind. Confession and penitence, it's threshold. That's how we enter into prayer. Adoration, it's sanctuary, what we're surrounded in. The presence and vision and enjoyment of God, it's bread and wine, or others may write, delight. In it, God shows himself to us. That he answers prayer is corollary, not necessarily the most important one from the Revelation. What he does is learn from what he is. What God does is learn from what he is. In other words, prayer is really about being with the person of God. We've made requests, it's focal point here in the church. Yet I don't think it's supposed to be that way. Like in the Western church, our way of praying is a list of wants, a list of needs, a list of whatever. And it's. I don't see that in the way that C.S. Lewis and other authors describe prayer. So when the text says that Jesus, he was up all night praying, he wasn't requesting, I don't think, oh God, who the heck do I need to select? Who are my guys? Really, you want me to choose these, bozo- these bozos, these knuckleheads, these idiots from out of town that are Just so bad. Rather, I think Jesus is revealing his humanity to us. He's modeling for us. He's fully aware of the guys he's going to call. He's going to call the apostles. So why does he begin with prayer? It's because he's revealing he also, in his humanity, has limitations and needs Prayer for this massive day that he has. Big things are happening and he has to be prayed up. So then it follows. The flow follows. Jesus prays on the mountain. He invites his apostles. uh, And then he demonstrates or invites these four towns worth of people into the kingdom of God. What can we take away from this? As I said at the beginning, we want to pray as Jesus prays and invite like Jesus invites my encouragement would be this, and I hope you hear this with all the good intentions of my heart, to pray not by making all of your ups and downs, though yes, there is goodness in making known your hearts and laying it bare before the Lord, but I would hope that we would actually sit long enough and still enough with the Lord that prayer becomes not so much a conversation or worse, maybe like a list of wants, but rather it's a place of being. That we would rest in him, and as the passage goes, to be still and know, fully know that he is God. And as we're still, that he begins uh, to be our all. That as we sit, we may begin to know that he is supplier of every need that we may have on our list, healer of all the wounds that we may have experienced emotionally, physically, spiritually. And then we want to invite as Jesus invites. Uh, We've had this graph up many a times over the past uh, couple weeks. And there are several circles in which we are inviting people into our lives. Notice Jesus didn't invite all of what the text says Judea, Jerusalem, the seacoast of Tyre, and Sidon. That's four towns worth of people, guys. I know some of you are extroverts, but let's just be realistic. You are not able to invite four towns worth of people into your life. It's just not happening. Rather, let's press into community. If you were not in a life group, this would be a sweet opportunity to get plugged in to one and start growing that inner circle. Tyler, if you could go back one. Because I see this, Jesus modeling the four towns, large circle, his hometown maybe, inner circle, a little bit more inner, his twelve. And then his three, James and John, seeing him transfigured on the mountaintop. And that's not a template that we need to follow rigorously, but rather an invitation to see the different dynamics that people are invited into your life to different degrees. Jesus didn't invite all four towns worth of people into the inner circle, but he had different layers. Just recognizing his own human capacity. So if you're not in a life group, my encouragement would be, please be in one. Oh, it's so good, and it helps us grow those inner circles where we can start to lay bare some of those deep woes and hurts where other community can start to praying for those things. If you are in a life group, my press would then be to go deeper into those relationships. If it's uncomfortable, great. Great. I'm sure Matthew and Simon wanted to kill one another at some point. (laughs) And yet, the Lord called them to follow him. And that relationship grew. It didn't stay in rivalry. Often I think we desire community out of chemistry. We want people who understand us and understand um, all the stuff that's going on. and We we can really relate to them, but often Jesus' kingdom is not really that way. And not that chemistry is bad to desire. But Revelations 5.9, the church is this, from every tribe, language, people, and nation. And their only common goal is, uh, is Jesus. You might could insert from every political ideology, theological difference, age, race, career pursuit, you name it. Jesus' invitation is for us all. So who are we inviting into our lives or into the community? Who are we praying for, watching for the Lord to open a door and stepping toward them when the opportunity arises? To build community is such a value for us that we have various events that we hold throughout the year, uh, opportunities for you to jump into different levels of community. We just had a flannel and fish fry the other day. How many of you were there? It was awesome, wasn't it? We had a men's bowling event just not too long ago. How many people were there? It was awesome, wasn't it? And then, just upcoming around the corner, we have women's, they're doing an event. Jen, Quanch, come on up here. They are currently doing this event called Marked by Joy, where they're going to invite women into this very dynamic, going deeper into the Word. I'll invite the worship team up as well at this moment.
2: Yeah, as Jack said, uh, we have an event coming up. And um, what I'm so excited about, as Jack was talking about this sense of community, is um, there's, there's something really amazing about relationships. And I, I think I learn a lot independently, but when you can get around other people, when I, I'm not going to talk about you, I'm going to talk about me. When I can get around other people and talk to them about things that I'm struggling with, that really... Um, Solidifies exactly where God wants me to go next. Often, um, we, in in our uh, in our women's conference coming up, we're going to be looking at God's word and we're going to be talking about joy in Jesus. And mm. I, I mean, if you've been here at all, you know that that is what we are passionate about here at Hillcrest. And so we're going to be talking about being marked by joy, even in our culture, even in, in whatever's whatever is going on in our lives, and. After we have those teaching sessions and we're looking at God's word, we're going to be talking to each other. And um, I I think back on last year's conference um, to – Uh, probably about an hour and a half to two hours where my friend Lisa came in to um, talk with Cindy and Jenny and I, multi-generational. And we sat and and wrestled over some things that that all of us had in common, something that we were all sort of dealing with in one aspect of our lives or another. And um, and that conversation I think took us deeper than the actual text we were looking at mm. because we were then rehashing like, you know what I thought, um, it was just really powerful. And I, and I think about that. And then even after that, um, Lisa and I have had some texts where you know, a prayer request might be sent out and uh, on it. That might be just mm. the answer back um, or Cindy and I are in life group together. Um so I, I just think of um, I just think of those kinds of relationships that you can build and you can get in that community and it makes the bigger community a little bit smaller. Mm-hmm. and so um, so yeah, so mark by joy and uh, I'll be out in the lobby and uh, please come sign up if you are if you are past graduation, um, you are old enough and you are never too old to come to a women's conference. So love it. Thanks.
1: Well, let me pray for us uh, as we close our time together. Jesus, you are so good to us. Jesus, we want to, like you, model our life uh, after how you lived your life, that we would bring uh, our massive days to you before they happen. And then we would see people and love people like you did, that we would look upon the various people and have compassion on them in their life. Jesus help us to sit, uh, to sit with you in prayer. Now would you make us uh, more aware of who you are as our supplier? as our provider for everything. Help us trust you more and more, your goodness and your faithfulness. Amen.